listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For all the boots of tramping warriors and all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thanks for that reading, Jim. So again, happy Advent, everybody. How how are we all doing with the Christmas season? Are we... Are, are we listening to the annoying songs and watching movies? I know we've watched both Home Alone so far. Uh, yesterday, the kids watched Elf for the first time, so that was exciting. It was exciting for me. I think it was exciting for them, too. <clears throat> anyway, we're in the second week of our Advent series, uh, which we are calling What's in a Names? Um, and what we're going to be doing for the next four weeks is we're going to be exploring these four names of the Messiah that are given to us in Isaiah chapter 9. I think we've got them up here. <clears throat> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. These are going to be ingrained in you uh, one month from now. But basically what we're doing is every week we are choosing one of these and we are doing a deep dive. Last week uh, we dug into Wonderful Counselor, which brings us today to Mighty God. Now if you weren't here last week, if you missed last week's sermon, you're going to want to go back and catch that one. That was a pretty important one, and of course, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the service, we had audio issues last week with the live stream, which means that the folks who uh, tuned in to worship with us on Facebook and YouTube had no audio for the first like half hour of the service. Was anyone here home for that and struggling to listen? My apologies, my sincerest apologies to you. We got it straightened out. We still have audio, right? We get up there. Yes, thumbs up, excellent. Um, but we, we got that worked out. Um, and if you missed last week's sermon, either because uh, maybe you weren't here or you're one of the folks at home who gave up on the live stream, um, we, you can go back and catch it. You can uh, get caught up. Go to our YouTube page. Go to youtube.com and search for Brockport First Baptist. We actually caught um, the sermon with audio. I think we missed maybe the first minute or two of it, but the rest is there. You can watch it. And if you don't mind audio only, go to our website, rockportfirstbaptist.org sermons, and you can listen to last week's sermon there. You just don't get to see all of this, which is maybe, maybe makes it for a better experience. I don't know. <clears throat> now, 
The reason, though, the reason that last week's message was so important is we covered the background of Isaiah chapter 9. We got into the context of this poem about a promised Messiah who is going to liberate God's people. A lot of times as Christians, when we come to these messianic texts from the Old Testament, these, these texts about the Messiah, we don't always read them very well, right? Like a lot of times we'll kind of ignore or skip over the original context. A lot of folks can't even tell you what Isaiah 9 is actually talking about because we just want to jump right to how it connects with Jesus, what we can glean from this about Jesus. And of course, when we do that, we end up missing a lot of what this passage is actually saying. And ironically, we miss some of the nuances about how exactly Jesus fulfills this hope. So I want to recap some of what we talked about last week. We're not going to go as in-depth, but just for, to, to refresh us all, really. Um, this poem in Isaiah 9 that Jim just read for us about a people walking in darkness who've seen a great light. This text was written in the 8th century B.C., which means it is almost 3,000 years old. And it was written at a time when the people of Jerusalem were really facing danger from, like, every front. You had the constant threat of invasion from uh, the Assyrian Empire. That was one problem that was going on back then. Um, You also had all of these kings over smaller neighboring kingdoms who were plotting together to uh, invade Jerusalem and, and try to take over. Then on top of all of that, you had a completely incompetent, evil king on the throne in the form of King Ahaz. He was a really bad king. We don't have time to get into it to the depth we did last week, but suffice it to say, Ahaz was bad news. All this stuff going on, all this darkness, and this poem enters in like a burst of lightning, just lighting up the sky to celebrate the birth of a new king, King Hezekiah, who was Ahaz's son. Um, There was a lot of hope connected to Hezekiah, this new king, a lot of expectation that he was going to be a different kind of ruler. He was going to be better than his dad. There was going to be change. And for the most part, Hezekiah actually lived up to the hype. He wasn't perfect, but he was a great king, a truly great king. But even he wasn't perfect. Hezekiah made some mistakes, and after he died, you had another empire rise up, Babylon, which invaded Jerusalem, destroyed it, and carried the people off into exile. After Babylon, it was Persia, then the Greeks, then the Romans, empire after empire, dominating and subjugating uh, God's people for 800 years by the time we get to Jesus. So this poem about a new king who's going to come and liberate God's people, this text about a promised Messiah, which was already ancient by Jesus' day, this became a source of hope and expectation. We might even say a subversive force for Jews who are living under Roman occupation. Then Jesus steps on the scene, King Jesus, and he fulfills this text in some really unique and surprising ways. That's the background of this passage that we covered last week. Are you all still with us so far? We're good? Excellent. Now, last week we covered Wonderful Counselor. We talked about how Jesus fulfills that hope, but Isaiah gives us four titles, four names for this king. 
going to read them again. <clears throat> Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Looking at these titles, they're all pretty standard titles for a king, right? You've got counselor in there, which basically means ruler. It's, it has to do with governing. Um, you've got father, because it's a patriarchal society, so of course. Um, you, you've got prince, which is another royal title. They're, they're all pretty standard king language, except for one. One is kind of strange, especially to describe a Jewish and that's Mighty God. Now, this wouldn't be a weird title for a king in some other ancient cultures. It was really common for some of these ancient cultures to view their, God, their king as a god, or at least as like semi-divine, a, a son of the gods, we could say, but not Jewish culture. The Jews were monotheists. They might have like flirted with other gods here and there, but ultimately they believed that there was only one god, and the king was not it. In fact, if anything, it was the opposite. Like, if you actually read the Old Testament, if you read some of these stories about these ancient kings of Israel, you'll find that, if anything, they're like the polar opposite of God. The kings, the rulers, are usually portrayed as like absolutely terrible people, about as far from God as you can possibly get. There's no mistaking a Jewish king for God. So what's with the Messiah being called promise or being called mighty God? The Sunday school answer would be Jesus, right? It's because of Jesus. And like that's right, that's true, that's correct, all right? Um, we do believe that Jesus was God, is God, and that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise. So that works, but that doesn't really answer the question doesn't really tell us what Isaiah was talking about, how it's possible that for 800 years before Jesus, the adherents of a monotheistic religion were expecting a king who would be called Mighty God. Like, how is that possible? To get into that question, we actually need to do a quick grammar lesson. And I see your eyes glazing over at the mention of grammar. Don't do that. Don't check out. This is important. And I hated grammar too as a kid. I promise this is not going to be bad. This is going to be easy stuff, basic grammar, third grade grammar, okay? Real quick, grammar lesson. I want to talk to you about parts of speech. You guys remember this? Parts of speech, nouns, verbs, adjectives, there's more. But we're just going to focus on these three, okay? Um, Let's, let's, see, let's see how much you guys remember from third grade. <clears throat> noun. Someone shout it out. You have to yell loud because of the masks. What's a noun? Person, place, you, perfect. You even know the order. Person, place, or thing. Excellent. Verbs. What are verbs? Action words. Excellent. And adjectives? Describers. Yeah, adjectives describe other words, usually other nouns, right? Pretty simple stuff. You give yourselves a hand. You, you remember grammar from third grade. So, like, let's do an example. We take this sentence. <clears throat> Sally threw the blue ball, okay? You've got two nouns here, right? Sally and the ball. Can you even see that on the screen? Apologies if it's not clear. Then the verb is what? Through, as in to throw. Yeah, that's your action word. And then we got one adjective, blue, right? Perfect. You guys remember this. 
Very cut and dry, basic grammar. Here's the problem, though. We were all taught that there is a crystal clear distinction between nouns, verbs, and adjectives. And that's generally true for modern languages, languages like English. But as you might have guessed already, Isaiah was not writing in English. <laughs> he was writing 3,000 years ago in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, this relationship, these categories of the parts of speech, they can get a little bit fuzzy. Here's an example. Uh, this is the Hebrew word melech. Let me hear you all say melech. Very good, excellent pronunciation. Melech is the Hebrew word for king. So like King Ahaz was Melech Ahaz. King Hezekiah, Melech Hezekiah, right? But that's when it's used as a noun. When Melech is used as a verb, it means to rule, right? Melech, king, to rule. And then if you use it as an adjective, it means royal. So king, to rule, royal. Noun, verb, adjective, it's all just melech in Hebrew, which means that your third grade English teacher lied to you. <laughs> or they just didn't know Hebrew. Benefit of the doubt. Here's the good news, though, with this. Good news. 96% <clears throat> of the time, this is easy to figure out. The context usually fill this, fills this out for us. Based on like sentence structure, we can discern when you're reading Hebrew which is which. Otherwise, the language wouldn't make any sense. There's just one exception. Poetry. In Hebrew poetry, all the rules of sentence structure kind of break down. All the grammatical tricks that help translators figure out how words are being used, it all kind of skews. English poetry is not that far off from this. It's a similar idea. All the grammar goes out the window when you're in poetry. This is why if you ever get your hands on like two different English translations of the Bible, like let's say you've got an NIV and an NRSV, you should open to the book of Psalms and start comparing because you will find wildly different translations of the Psalms. And it's because of this. It's because of how the grammar gets a little sketchy in Hebrew poetry. And Isaiah 9 is a poem. So let's bring back these four titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. With each of these, basically, you've got a pair of words, two words, a noun and an adjective. So one is describing the other. And for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. Like, we can figure this out. But there's some nuance. There's some ambiguity, especially with Mighty God. There is more than one way to render this phrase in English. Now, Christian Bibles, Christian Bibles are going to make this mighty God because Jesus, right? Christian Bibles are going to go mighty God every time, and that is fine. That is a 100% accurate, correct translation of this phrase. But our Jewish friends translate it a little bit differently. If you open most Jewish Bibles, you're going to find, you're not going to find mighty God in Isaiah 9. You're going to find something much closer to divine warrior. You see how they get there? If you take mighty, make it a noun, you get like the mighty one, the warrior. 
And then if you take God and make it the description word, it's like divine or godly. So godly warrior, God's warrior, divine warrior. Now question, why would a people who lived under foreign occupation for 800 years be looking for a divine warrior? It's obvious, right? Like they've been living under foreign occupation for 800 years. Of course they want a divine warrior. If you were a Jew living at the time of Jesus, you would want a divine warrior too. You'd want a Messiah who's going to show up and clean house. Strike down the Romans. Liberate your people. Establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is revolutionary language. This is basically my dad can beat up your dad, but on like a cosmic scale, right? That's what's going on here. The problem is, we don't live in Jerusalem anymore. It's not 2,000 years ago. That's not most of our experience here in the here and now, the States, 21st century. And yet a lot of us, if we're honest, are still looking for a divine warrior. You want to know some of, like, some of what's wrong with Christianity, with the church today, why things don't line up, why Christians can behave so ungracefully in like public discourse, why we can get behind ideas and leaders and regimes that look nothing like Jesus, it's because we're still looking for a divine warrior, a strong man, someone who's going to make us feel safe, someone who's going to beat up on our enemies, the people we don't like, and ultimately someone who's going to give us power. This is where Jesus' fulfillment of this passage is so radical, so surprising. Because Jesus is a divine warrior. Like, make no mistake about that. He's, he's literally a divine warrior. He's just not the divine warrior you were looking for. We might expect a divine warrior who would, like, cozy up with the, the rich and the powerful, you know, forge alliances, strengthen our position, maybe, like, run for office. Because power is good. Might makes right. If someone is wealthy, if someone has a lot of power and authority, surely that came from God. Yet, what does this divine warrior do? He condemns the rich and exalts the lowly. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your reward. Ouch. We're all rich, by the way, in like world standards. That should sting a little. We would expect a divine warrior to like come with a sword, right? To strike down our enemies, give us power. But Jesus commands us to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. A divine warrior would ride into town on a horse, right? Regal, royal, tall, strong. Jesus shows up on a donkey, and a borrowed donkey at that, right? 
completely different model of what the divine warrior should be. You want a strong man? You want a king? Kings sit on thrones that are adorned with jewels and gold. Jesus' throne is a cross. His inauguration is his crucifixion. When he's at his very lowest point, that is when he is exalted and lifted up. That is the upside-down kingdom of God. If you want to see God's warrior, look at the cross. If you want to see a depiction of the power of God on display, our mighty God, look no further than Jesus laying down his life for his enemies. Ultimately, this is why Jesus was rejected. This is why he died. This is why the powers that be didn't recognize him and the people turned on him because he wasn't the type of divine warrior they were looking for. It's easier to follow the warrior God, the divine warrior, the the God who gives us what we want, who promises to strike down our enemies, give us power. It's a lot easier to follow that than the God who tells us to love our enemies and lay that power down. But make no mistake, this is the power of God. This is the surprising witness of Jesus, the revelation that God is not coming as a conqueror to dominate and destroy, but God is coming to lay down his own life and die out of love. This is what we celebrate in Advent. This is the story we are entering into, and it's the same story that brings us to the table of communion month after month. The story of a God who laid down his life for us so that we could live. Let's pray. Mighty God, thank you for the radical example of your son. Thank you for coming into our midst, not as a warrior to conquer and destroy, but as a servant to lay down your life out of love. God, we ask that you would free us. Free us from our quest for a divine warrior so that we may follow Jesus, the only person who ever lived up to that title. Help us to embody his love, to remember his sacrifice, and to celebrate your gift to us this Advent. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. 
This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.